Welcome back to another episode of Creative Chit Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod. This week I am joined by the director of V&A Dundee, uh, Leonie Bell, and she takes me through her creative journey, um, starting way back at her childhood through lots of really interesting positions of, of quite sort of high levels of, of responsibility um, and we talk about the sort of common theme of, of that being a real driver in her career to sort of take on those roles that she might not be quite equipped for at that point in time but that she sees that as a real driver um, and we also go into this really interesting sort of um, chat about confidence and overconfidence um, and, and this sort of and then that leading into this the arrogance and how that can sort of just completely turn people off um, like myself particularly um, but then Leone introduces this concept of sort of energy which is, is fascinating and one that I'd never really sort of considered or heard before so um, yeah some really nice insights into sort of Leone's perspective on the world and how she sort of um, how she views her own creativity, but also how she views teams and communities and how important they are to the work that she does. Um, so yeah, there's, I mean, I'd love to have had another hour and delved really deeply into um, the the issues and all the other questions that I had, but fortunately I only had a, for an hour. Um, but we cover a lot of ground and there's some really, really lovely insights in there as well. So, so hopefully you all enjoy this and it's a a good sort of um, insight into the, the sort of life and thinking and the journey of, of Leone. Um, so yeah, let's just get into the episode. Um, this is director of V&A Dundee, Leone Bell. So I suppose journey, creative journey or not, but journey started in Dundee in the mid-70s when I was born in Nine Wells um, and moved back to the city at the end of... 2020, having left in 1993 for a period of 27 years, so we can maybe fill in that big 27 year gap in a little bit but um, I think probably like many people, my creative journey started way back in my childhood brought up in a family where I felt loved and supported to be an individual which I think does encourage you to have a creative voice and develop your own cultural identity, although obviously when you're wee you're up to a certain age you kind of fall in line with what your family does but I guess I was lucky that I had a family that was up for travelling had the ability to travel had museums and galleries and festivals as part of their life so we kind of just did that too and then I guess <laughs> the big kind of step change for me was and it sounds really kind of embarrassing but maybe not embarrassing was just the kind of rise of popular culture in my 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 life so things like George Michael and Wham and Madonna and my addiction to Top of the Pops on a Thursday and the charts on a Sunday, getting things like smash hits did start to open my eyes up to, oh, hold on a minute, there's other stuff that can speak to people and can speak to me that that was about youth and generations changing, but also about fashion, I guess. A lot of it came down to fashion and being blown away by seeing Madonna on Top of the Pops wearing her lace gloves and all that sort of stuff and just being completely seduced by George Michael wearing those T-shirts and all that sort of stuff. So... Um, at school I was kind of one of those kids that was lucky enough I did alright at everything but not brilliantly at everything I loved I loved school because I just loved the mix of it I loved the social side of it I went to Madras and St Andrews after Newport Primary um, and then I went straight to Glasgow University where I did English first but I guess the big the big thing for me was my 
that Glasgow was a massive thing in my life. I wanted to go from a really, really young age and I can't work out whether that was a cultural decision in response to having been at school in St Andrews and I love St Andrews now, so I mean this with the greatest respect to that historic university town but as a teenager you get there's a sense that there's more beyond it. Looking back, I'm aware it was a really privileged place to go to school. Madras is a really rarefied state school experience. It instills a an amazing confidence and sense of aspiration and sense of possibility that you can achieve something in you. And when that's also kind of coupled with your your family background, which is loving and supportive and believes in education and travel and art and all those sorts of things, sets you up pretty well. Gives you the ability to deal with life's kind of challenges when they do come on. But Glasgow, I guess, university was important to me, but actually it was the city. The city just was full of possibilities and I loved that it was quite an, a place of anarchy, a place of kind of radical change, a place of arts on spaces place of you know self-organized clubbing as well as the big formal set pieces of things like you know Kelvin Grove and the Borough Collection and all those sorts of things I did, I did sort of start identifying I guess with those that were art, art school even though I wasn't there and then actually the big change I guess was when I did my postgraduate um, I moved from doing English to doing a postgrad in the history of decorative art and design and I guess it reinforced in my mind something that maybe had been latent that actually I really loved stuff I loved humanity's ability to make things whether that was like a cup or a mug or a building or something more informal and everyday like an allotment structure I guess being able to study 500 years of history of how humans have made things from the materials around them actually I guess was a, a point where my mind started to mature around what I could maybe do professionally um, and then I was lucky I do think I've been bloody lucky um, in a whole load of ways but the timing that I did that course was 97, 98. In 1999, Glasgow had been successful in becoming UK City of Architecture and Design. So after a little bit working with a design entrepreneur called Andy Harold, who was a really, really pioneer and kind of retail guy in Glasgow at the time, he introduced me to loads of European and Glasgow designers. I then went into work for Glasgow 99 and I guess that's where my creative journey officially all, start, all started. And so when you when you say your creative journey, do you mean like, obviously you've been involved and as you talked about, you've been immersed in this sort of culture and as as your life went went on. Um, but do you, do you see that as in like you then had a creative outlet? Is that what you mean by that? I don't, I don't know. I think about this all the time because I think I believe everybody is creative. I don't. I think I'm creative and maybe not artistic as I came to understand it over the years. If that is a definition that's helpful for anyone and it's possibly not. I've got a lot of friends and I started to gravitate towards people who were at art school, who were doing art, who were doing design, who were doing architecture. Because actually not only did I love their technical ability, but I loved the way I think that they naturally saw the world, but also were being trained to think really, really critically. And I didn't feel I was maybe getting that in more mainstream university education. So I started to see there was other possibilities through studio-based art school education that was really, really interested in. So quite often my creative outlets come by the people that I've associated myself with. I think I've had a... And I suppose I've done that through work as well as in my personal life. I think I've, if I've got any creative skills, it's like I can kind of gather and synthesise a lot of different bits yeah, I think I suppose maybe in the jobs I've done as well, you spend a lot of time thinking about the definitions of certain words. So you spend a lot of time thinking about the definitions of creativity and art and culture. And actually, it, it, it you do lose yourself in those pursuits because actually quite often they're potentially totally pointless, as you say. And, and I do believe that every single human being is born bursting with creative and imaginative potential somehow through 
the various things that society does. We de we de skill kids in that. And we do that too much. And we also take people's confidence away, certainly in the job I'm doing now. And in fact, many jobs I'm doing, I quite often hear people talking about how, you know, culture, art, creativity isn't for them. And it's that that's something that we really have to try and get under the skin of, because as we're saying, it is, it, is, it is for all. I don't, what, what I suppose I'm not sure I'm maybe as focused on as other people is the pursuit of having an outlet for my creativity is something that, it isn't the driving force for what I do because I also really love organisations. I love the systems that are within organisations and how people behave when they're together. And I also love the thought of taking creativity and maybe design thinking and all that sort of stuff into non-creative and cultural organisations, which is why I've probably deviated about the organisations that I've worked with throughout my, the jobs that I've done and those and those sorts of things. So you brought us up to the point which you were in Glasgow and you've gone into your first, I suppose, creative role. Um, yeah. So how did that go first time round? Oh, it was amazing. So to sort of cast, cast listeners' minds back to 1999, it was a totally different world. I mean, the art sector, culture sector was flooded with new lottery money. There was an incredible sense of kind of ambition and optimism and thoughts of referendums were, were, were distant. The Scottish Parliament had just opened. DCA was opening. You know, there, were, there was amazing things happening at scale, which was really, really exciting. Um, and so my first job was initially as exhibition researcher going into this phenomenally well-funded year with significant infrastructure called Glasgow 1999. And I was asked to go in as a researcher because I'd done my dissertation as my postgrad on how museums collect fashion and actually how they often were collecting from, I suppose, hot couture and very, very kind of specific sorts of collections in fashion houses. And I was kind of interested actually in how the ability of the st- of what people wore in the streets to inform how museums could potentially collect as well. Particularly inspired, ironically now, by a V&A exhibition at the time in the late 90s, looking at the kind of fashion of surfers, solis and punks and skaters. So I kind of expanded some of those ideas in a dissertation. So Glasgow 99 did an exhibition on winning the design of sports. I did a bit of research for it and then segued again, luckily, into becoming one of their exhibition coordinators, working on massive set piece exhibitions around sport, in McClellan, food in Calvin Grove, um, other things like that. And I suppose it was one of those, I think I was there for just over two years, two years where you get 10, 15 years experience working with incredible people from across the UK and the world, just meeting so many different designers, so many different curators, but also trying to start to understand the ecosystem of how you produce something enormous across the city using traditional venues and non-traditional venues. But I was 23, so I was very, very green. I was just kind of started out, but just absorbed an awful lot. And still think back to that year a lot in terms of what was done right and what wasn't done right. I think you would do your your city-based community neighbourhood programmes in a completely different way now, and probably your learning ones too, actually. Although some of the learning stuff was really, really pioneering then. So that was that was two years. And then what was the next? What was the next step, the next opportunity after that? So... Um, it all seems so predictable when you kind of look back after 25 years. But so part, one of the capital legacy projects of that year was to establish um, a centre for architecture design in the city in a Macintosh building, the old Herald building right in the city centre of Glasgow called The Lighthouse, led by Stuart MacDonald. Um, and I moved over to being exhibition coordinator. And then I suppose fairly quickly through his support and just the opportunity of being at The Lighthouse, trying to set up a brand new organisation of which there was nothing else like really in Scotland and maybe a little bit in London, but not not really. Um, we were given free reign to lead and to develop 
the ways that we thought we could engage the public around the ideas that underpin architecture and design in the city, but also beyond. So we it felt like we were quite European in our in our outlook. So quite quickly, I was programme director there. We established new ways of curating, of producing, of thinking about how you make exhibitions around architecture and design and all the stuff in between all of that in galleries, but also across and throughout the whole building across the city. And we worked internationally pretty quickly. So I stayed there for quite a long time. Stayed there till about 2008, I think it was. Um, and it felt like a real flourishing, not just for Glasgow, but for a whole team of us that were there at the time that, you know, we were kids, hardly any of us were 30, we were having kids. We were trying new stuff and we were just totally supported to develop our own ideas and to put them into practice and see what worked and what didn't. And do you think that would that sort of model work today? Yeah, I can't ever think a model like that wouldn't work. And well, no, I know we'll come to v Dundee, but and it's a different sort of institution, but I think there are elements of that sense of how you don't necessarily think about the institution you're developing, but the community and the city and the country in which that organisation is part of and appear within and how you think about the kind of porosity around that and how actually you develop leadership and interests and ideas within your own organisation, but also the different communities that are around it, I think is something that I've never stopped thinking about since those lighthouse days when we were always supported to be like that and how as my jobs have changed and my roles have changed and the level of accountability I have has changed is how you you must kind of still try and generate that culture around you. And I suppose like at, at that point still relatively early in your career but there's a lot of as you said like the sort of freedom to explore but also responsibility on your shoulders. Yeah and I guess maybe that's something that I don't know where that comes from and I <laughs> I've thought about this a lot. I've, I've ne- yeah, so I've sought out positions of responsibility when I've not always maybe felt that I was equipped to do them. I don't ever remember thinking that I didn't shouldn't go for something, and and I and I don't really know what it is in your background or your psyche um, that makes you think that. I guess I had parents who my mum didn't work for a long time. She was a housewife. She's supported us. She went back and studied and went back to work. And my dad worked, but you also they did loads of community stuff. Like my mum was in the PTA. My dad ran the Scouts in Newport and. You know, they just kind of stood up for stuff and were part of things. Maybe that is more important in a way than the education you receive at school because you, you really want to kind of think about the community role and value you've got. But that sense of responsibility and accountability is probably something that I'm most surprised at in myself and it's the thing that probably has driven me to go for new new opportunities. I quite like having responsibility. And I think that like a lot of people have, have sort of sat where you are and said like almost the opposite, that they have this imposter syndrome. They feel that... The things that they're doing or the things that they want to aspire to do like they're not quite good enough and it's way outside of their comfort zone whereas you have I've sort of flipped down his head and said i went for that because of that reason because i felt i believed i could do that and it's like can, can you teach that mentality do you think you can teach that mentality and instill that in people to, to push themselves i don't know I, I think i think we overthink and value confidence and I think that often is related to um, a conventional male set of behaviours. I didn't think we'd get into this so quickly. Um, Whereas I think energy counts for a lot. I think if you've got a lot of energy, I think if you look at people around you who, they don't need to be at the top of organisations but they can be within organisations or working on a freelance basis but 
if they don't have the confidence, they quite often have a, a unique amount of energy and a kind of dynamic drive. And also, none of us ever work in isolation. I've been hugely supported by other people. I've never made a unilateral decision about what opportunity to go for next. I've got a family around me that support me and a really good support network with friends and that are both personal friends and professional friends who've probably all really kind of helped me with that. It's not, and I actually really struggle with the term imposter syndrome because I think it reinforces that some of us should stay where society thinks we should be and shouldn't go forward and I try and encourage people around me not to use it. Um, it doesn't mean that I don't question and I'm not self-critical. I think they're really, really different things. I do have, I did feel tiny when I first sat on the office chair in VRA Dundee. And I remember thinking, why do I feel so small in this big office chair? And I thought, stop feeling small. And then I thought, it's fine being small. So, you know, I go, I have this, these kind of weaving conversations with myself all the time. But yeah, I don't, I try really, really hard to encourage people not to think in terms of imposter syndrome. But it doesn't mean that I don't think being self-critical and self-aware and keeping yourself in check when you have a fancy job title isn't really, really fundamental. I do think you have to put your sense of self to the side and think collectively and about the organisation, the team around it. I don't know if I've kind of rambled a bit, a bit there, but um, yeah, I I have a confidence that surprises myself <laughs> sometimes too. Yeah, I think I've, I've never heard someone describe it as the, the energy versus the confidence because I think that overconfidence is a very dangerous thing um, and I really arrogance really turns me off someone instantly and it, it really sort of frustrates me um and sometimes it can be that fine line between finding the point at which you're confident in your abilities but not overconfident but I, I, yeah i like the idea that it's actually that energy that you, that you look for um instead of a confidence i've never really heard it described like that before yeah and i don't know when i first started thinking of it like that there was a, you're making me think you're making me reflect quite a lot and I did all right at school, but I wasn't the best in anything. I was all right. Um, I could have probably done better. I was one of those kids that, you know, massively exploited the privilege that I'd been born into. Um, but I remember my guidance teacher, Mr Mackay, who I look back ever so fondly with. He was an English teacher at Madras. And I think me and my pals drove him mad because I think probably all he saw was massive potential, but we were just more interested in hanging out with skaters and like doing other stuff and you know, just having fun. We were just, and again, that was about energy and what happens when you meet a group of people. But I remember Mr. Mackay writing in my final year report and saying to me, I don't know what you'll end up doing, but you have this really interesting confidence. And I thought, I don't remember, I didn't think about it for years, maybe until I've come back and I'm thinking back about my past an awful lot more. And it was interesting that he, as my guidance teacher, saw that as an attribute, maybe over and above how a school normally understands you or how a school maybe would understand you in terms of attainment now. I just think kids have so much more than that. And if you get energy and you get, you try and understand that as something that is as important as confidence or more so. And I'm, I'm like you, I find hubris really problematic and dangerous in, in positions of authority and leadership. And I don't just think about that in terms of who I am as an individual. I think about who am, I, who am I as a friend? Who who How does that manifest itself in my being a resident in the city again? But also, what, how do you stop organisations having hubris? How do you stop an organisation having arrogance and also being really critically aware of the context in which it is operating in and being really relevant in a in an in quite an entangled set of circumstances that we're all walking in and working in now? So I think it is really interesting to think about it in terms of yourself, but also as an organisation and as a building. Because, we, you know, I'm working in a building that is incredibly awesome. Um, so we can maybe come to that too. Um, do you want to take us, obviously the lighthouse was a, a big significant part of your journey, but do you want to take us on that 
Oh yeah, the light. I mean, actually, the light. I could talk about the lighthouse for like hours because the lighthouse was everything to me, and I think a lot of other people. It, because I guess it's in our mid to late twenties, early thirties, we were really working out who we were as adults, and we were given freedom. Um, and Stuart McDonald, the guy that that established it and and oversaw it, at times he would drive me mad because <laughs> he he gave us so much free reign. But I lo- I look back and realise that actually he he was an incredible leader and enabler of us, and also. These were the days where actually the, your maternity rights weren't great and I had my first kid, got pregnant at 26. He'd promoted me to programme director all within the same months, same months. Flexible working came in under the Labour government. It was a time of kind of change and I and the reason I'm talking about these things is all of these things align to enable me to keep working. So my partner was a student at the time, we were so skint. I went back to work weeks after I'd had my first kid, was promoted that that see that could seem harsh in retrospect, but actually they were really positive things for us as a family because it enabled us to co-parent throughout our lives, both develop our careers and our creative interests, as we were kind of talking about. Um, but I think also at the Lighthouse, Stuart and others board members there invested in me really, really early on, and that investment still lasts today. Still remember some things that Stuart and like Janice Kirkpatrick, Graven Images and Shona Reid, who are all board members, then said to me and. Um, it was just a kid, <laughs> but they really believed it. They believed in us. So yeah, the lighthouse was you know brilliant, and actually it's been lovely because even you know we were trying stuff out. We did a really big show called the Scottish Show, like a review of design, and we thought we were being really radical, and maybe we were because we didn't just do that in the galleries. We did that in the toilets, in the corridors, in the alley outside. You know, we were hanging things from the circulation spaces. We just wanted design to roam and have have a sense of voice in the country, and we felt that we were generating something like that through through the lighthouse um so yeah i stayed there for as long as i felt i could be a really positive part of its energy which was quite a long time and we did a mate in like so the scottish show was something i'm really proud of was also really proud of the work we did with glasgow school of art and securing the gillespie kitten coy archive you know some of the most important modernist architects working in the uk um and doing an enormous kind of legacy exhibition while we were lucky enough to still have izzy metstein and andy mcmillan the two sort of lead architects alive so got to a point where I thought okay I've achieved I've done a lot here (laughs) what's next and then strangely what was next was the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games um which sounds kind of a bit a bit like a a random move but I suppose through the lighthouse as well we'd also got really interested in can you genuinely through exhibition making convey a valuable experience of architecture and design that you don't get just by being experiencing that architecture and design in the real world. So we were starting to really think about what what more can you do with exhibitions? And we did believe you could continually do do more and more with exhibitions, but we also believe we could do things out and about in the city more. So we had started to look at different sort of ways that we could do festivals and engaging people in different settings and sites and thinking about the context in which we were making exhibitions or events or talks or installations. So actually the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games actually felt like a big step up in scale to maybe think about the place that you put on a wide variety of art and cultural activity, including architecture and design. But the architecture and design stuff stayed with me the whole time. So we were always thinking about, or in those roles, I was always trying to think about the physical, social, cultural context in which we were making those programmes. But it was also a leap up, I guess, in terms of how you how you maybe hone your poli- political muscles, because we were working on in Scotland on a UK wide enormous, enormous undertakings with, you know, huge amounts of complex stakeholders and brand 
values and management and issues around it. And actually, you learn a, you learn a lot doing that, an awful lot. And and when you when you talk about it, obviously, you you talk about it as a very positive experience. I imagine it was it had its ups and downs, and it was a, a sort of something at that scale will not come without stress. So, I mean, how do you deal with that when you are creating something on that sort of scale? I don't know. I don't... Maybe it's hindsight and it kind of has an ameliorating effect, doesn't it? But, um, yeah, it was kind of stressful, but not that stressful. I kind of... I really love what I do, so I don't... It's funny the things that stress you out. And, um, again, maybe we can visit that, that later on. But with the Olympics and Commonwealth Games, I think the main challenge was... There was enormous cynicism, especially in Scotland, about how you could create something with creative credibility to welcome London's hosting of the Olympic Games and then two years later, the Commonwealth Games. But there was something in their very philosophical, the ideas that underpinned their birth, if you like, that I was kind of really interested in, as many other people were that that were working on the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games. And that was that there is something about the human's ability to push beyond their own limits, see their limits and go beyond them. Somebody smarter than me has said that officially somewhere. And I suppose that's what sport does. It's what you do with art. It's what you do with architecture. It's what you do in med. It's what you do in loads and loads of different fields, whether it be science and things that we're seeing around us at the moment. But So there was a real challenge for me, I suppose, and I do like a challenge of trying to create something that people working in arts and culture in Scotland would value in the programme around the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games. And also, I guess, I started getting interested in the political positioning of art and culture and thinking about, can you take those massive moments and use those as significant levers of advocacy for arts and culture and creativity more generally? And also in terms of audiences, it's it's a gift of an opportunity because the audience appeal and magnetism of an Olympics or a Commonwealth Games is enormous and the art and culture did always have an early provenance within certainly the Olympics um, but to try and actually take that audience that comes to that and also stretch it further and introduce it to art and culture felt good felt like a really good thing to try to do in terms of kind of engaging engaging people kind of really broadly and, and deeply with things and then of course I guess with the modern multi-sporting event often there's lots of talk about they could be anywhere the infrastructure required to deliver them is so extreme because of brand management and security and ultimately can create quite a homo- homogenised experience. What what creates that sense of distinct individual experience in its culture? And so I worked on the national bit around the Commonwealth Games, but I think some of the stuff we commissioned around London 2012 and Glasgow 2014 was really, really good. Whether it had the legacy that we all talked about at the time, I, don't, I genuinely don't know. I genuinely don't know. I think other people would have to judge that. They felt felt like opportunities to release funding but I'm also really conscious as I look back that they also controlled the context in which people were being asked to commission work and that's something that I do think is kind of interesting I mean so after those like two huge events where do you go where's the next challenge how do you go forward from that so I guess where those two events took me and that unusually the role I was doing for the Olympics and Commonwealth Games was initially based within the Scottish Arts Council and then that moved into being Creative Scotland. So I was in Creative Scotland at a time where the organisations were coming together and there was quite a significant sequence of challenges and change in leadership within Creative Scotland. And I guess I was there at the heart of it and started to understand a little bit more about 
the importance of arts and cultural administration and the policy context it sits in. Um, so then went for, to be a director of arts at Creative Scotland and got it after being interim in that role for a little bit. Never thought I'd end up doing funding and administration. It took me a long time to work out how to do those roles, but again, wanted to really, really try and, I guess, reset the relationship of a funding body with the wider arts and cultural communities around it to really think about how important the administration of funding is, the the value that that, that, that has, the kind of public service that I believe that has. Um, so I spent a few years there working with a an inter- really amazing team. Um, and what you do in those roles also, you have an incredible privilege of developing a national view of something. So you, you generate a significant amount of knowledge and a really rich sense of contacts and networks by working nationally. So I stayed there for a few years um, and then sort of sidestepped, I suppose, into an amazing role and a role that I'm forever thankful for, which was to go into the Scotch government for two years to head up their cultural strategy team, working with ministers to develop Scotland's first culture strategy in over a decade. Um, those two years, again, like 1999, were two years where you have te- you learn 10 years worth of experience um, and, I guess, took things to a new national level. So your, your outlook, again, has expanded further across all of the mechanisms of government. Um, and trying to work out where does culture and art and I suppose architecture and design, the creative industries fit within all of that. So was really proud of the draft strategy through the process that we generated by working on it, which was consultative and I hope broad and deep. Um, and I guess the few things we tried to do with it were make quite big shifts in terms of it being almost impossible to imagine a better future for Scotland without thinking about the role that creativity and culture can have within that but also to expand maybe the the official view of, of culture and how it's understood and therefore funded to not just being what we've always had, but that it moves and it's dynamic and it happens in, in new sorts of ways as well as the traditional ways and also that it's an everyday thing as well as being an extraordinary thing. Don't think that they're mutually exclusive. So tried to wrestle with those things too. Again, but then I guess where I've, I've ended up back in Dundee is that um, also really, really felt the more I was working nationally, the more I was working at a strategic level, the greater the distance was between the stuff that I really believed in. And some people can work comfortably at national level for a really, really long time and still be really, really, really close to the things they believe in. I started to find it a little bit harder. Um, And I suppose I'd had my eye on what the beautiful town of Paisley was doing from the roles I'd had within government and creative Scotland anyway, and just loved the audacity of their uh, UK city of culture bid. And then they advertised for a job to even though they didn't get the bid to lead their incredibly ambitious plan for it and just really, really wanted a shot at working locally, actually, to see if you could put into practice some of the national policy and strategies you were approaching. How could you work in amongst and alongside a set of communities and neighbourhoods to do that in a town like Paisley, you know, had has some wounds, but just has an incredible soul and an incredible amount of creative potential around it. And I still think as, in terms of its cultural regeneration, what it's doing with this high street is, is still stand out for me in kind of European European terms. So I had an amazing two years there working in local government, again, understanding what it's like to work in a local authority, how you develop services, how you change services, how you try and think radically while also thinking about, you know, the bins and all that sort of stuff. Just totally brilliant learning. But then the V&A Dundee job came up through the pandemic and... Um, I guess it just, you know, actually back to what you were asking me about confidence, I wavered, I really, really wavered when it looked like it could be an opportunity that I could go for, for loads of reasons. Thought, right, just start, dip your toe into the process and see what happens. 
and then kept getting further into that pool of water of process, I suppose. Um, but I guess now looking back, people keep saying to me, when you look back at all the different organisational settings you've worked in and roles you've done, it, it's circular to get back here. But I didn't, you don't know that at the time yourself. But well, yeah, I mean, even in the in what you've described, okay, yeah, we know there's an end point coming and maybe you're talking towards that. But the way you talk about the lighthouse and the other roles that you've had, it all seems like a natural fit and a natural progression that the things that you're interested in and the organisational challenges and um, the the sort of championing of, of design and culture and architecture that, that the V&A role feels like a natural fit. Yeah, and it, it, does, it does now, but I guess you can create an narrative around anything, can't you? But see, when I was coming out of lockdown living in Glasgow with three kids who weren't, you know, in school and in the local authority, I'd been redeployed to help with some of the essential services around supporting people through the pandemics was working with you know some of our colleagues who were looking at food distribution and poverty you know my mind was in different places so at the time it did feel like a leap of faith and you know talking of energy and confidence needed needed that but also really need I asked a lot of my family about you know they've we've moved three kids and my partner's given up his way of working and living and you know have moved back to the city that we both actually really really love so it now all makes sense now but the V&A Dundee job obviously is a dream come true for me it is a, I love not only do I love the building um and and what it does in terms of a bit of architecture and a new place that's been created by the riverfront I love I just love love to use that word audacious again just absolutely love the audacity of it and the ambition of it and that completely believe that a small city like Dundee can continue to think really, really expansively about what it can be, and V&A Dundee is part of that for me. But V&A Dundee is only part of it. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a full stop in any way. I, I also really believe that V&A Dundee is only here because I've always seen Dundee as a cultural and creative city. There's a heritage there, you know, University Art School, all the other organisations that are here that are venue based and non venue based, um, and then with Eden coming and those sorts of things. So yeah, it feels like a maybe feels like more of a natural journey now, but it didn't when I was going through the recruitment process. It felt really hard. But then obviously you were successful and you, what was it like when you, you talked about going in and sitting down in that chair for the first time, but that, that moment when you walked into the building and knowing that that you were now director of that, that organisation, what did, what did that feel like? Oh, I mean, nuts. I still have, like, whoa moments. And I, I think I probably will always have them. And it's not about having imposter syndrome. It's just genuinely because I really love it. So everybody who knows v and Dundee, the, the way you get from the office up and out, you come out at the first floor where night fever currently is. And every time I come out of that door and see that expansive bit of civic space that Ken Gokum has created, I, I get a kick. My heart skips a beat every time I walk into the building. So, yeah, I've had moments of, like... Um, whoa, I can't believe I am the one that's leading this organisation. But actually, what I, what I more am likely to do is not think in those terms. I don't think of it, it in those in that isolating kind of way. I, I think that I am here with a lot of other people trying to make Vainy Dundee work. And I'm the one that's looking after it, um, hopefully for the next wee, the next wee while. But I definitely see it as a collective endeavour. Um, but yeah, it is exciting and it still kind of blows my mind a little bit. Um, and my mum is still in Newport um, and, you know, I'm getting used to, you know, that kind of visibility that comes with the role. I think that's something that both me and my family are kind of thinking through. It is a really big organisation in a small city. Yeah, and I mean, I kind of want to ask about that, the initial phase, that that when you're just coming into the job, you're obviously the, the second person who's had that role um, and you 
are working with a, a big organisation, a brand new building, a big iconic building on the waterfront as part of a bigger plan. And I want to talk a little bit about sort of, obviously at that point you're you're trying to bed yourself in. You're you're starting to have conversations with people, and actually, it's probably the point at which people want to voice their opinion. And you, I mean, I would imagine, I, I don't know, but I imagine at that point, there's a lot of critical feedback coming your way because this is the opportunity to see change. They see this as the moment to to express their feelings about about the building, about the organisation, about everything, about how they see it themselves. So, I mean, how did you deal with that that phase, if you like? Well, let me... So we started in October 2020. So we... I think it, so. There was still the there is still the pandemic. There was still the pandemic then too. We were open, so I'd visited obviously a few times and met the team, but I didn't. I didn't see the full organisation. I still haven't seen the full organisation altogether in one place. We did see a few of each other. A couple, a lot of us got together a couple of weeks ago when we when we could, but everything I was doing was online. So actually, the people I was meeting in terms of who was in the organisation first was the security, the maintenance, the cleaners and the front of house staff. And that was amazing, actually, because I think I got to know the bones of the organisation and how it runs as a building, literally, you know, behind the scenes at the museum. And also I was able to see firsthand just how important, you know, your visitor systems and your front of house team are in terms of they were on the front line in really kind of scary and changing times. So everybody else was working at home. So you also have to work out how you build relationships with people when you just see them from the shoulders up on the screen. And I'm I'm not, I think I've got quite far because I'm also really good in meetings. And I'm really good at meeting, really good in meetings. And that that is an undervalued skill set, I think, people who can actually be all right in a meeting and just kind of gather the, the pace of the conversation and kind of move it. But I think a lot of people who are really good at meetings are really good in meetings because they're picking up on nonverbal language and they've got emotionally, they're emotionally able to connect and see change or disappointment or worry in people. It's really, really hard to do that online. So I was having, to, like everybody, having to develop new skills. So I didn't really meet the full organisation. All my interview process was done online. I didn't meet the board in real life until really quite recently. My first conversations with the chair were all online or on the phone. So that that's a, an unusual set of circumstances to arrive in a job like this, isn't it, anyway? So we just did our best. I just met every single team, every person, was really up for hearing about all the criticism and the views. I, everybody will always have a, an opinion, a set of opinions on V&A Dundee, no matter what we do, because of what it costs to build us. And I think that's totally valid and fine, and I'm really interested in that. And I get told what people think of V&A Dundee every minute that I'm awake. And I don't, I don't mind that, because my kids here at school, even if they don't, haven't told their friends exactly what their mum does they, people talk about v Dundee all the time my partner here is that my mum through her network of friends who have known me, some of them since I was born are always telling me what, you know, everybody always tells me what they think and that's great and then of course we have the official roots into it as well so I was really really happy to try and seek out as broad a set of views about v Dundee as possible and I also arrived with my own I'd seen it as a funder I'd seen it as a policy person I'd seen it as a visitor as well and I, I was also interested in placing my views alongside that of many many others and I think that is something we just need to continue 
to do and to kind of and to welcome, but also I guess to hold our own a little bit in it. I say this a lot to the team and to the people people that I'm speaking about in that we're a really young organisation. We're really just beginning. So we will have the odd bump and we will do we're also not here to be completely safe and predictable, I don't think. I think that's also the role of organisations like VA Dundee and many, many other cultural organisations is to is to gather, assimilate, synthesize, always listen, always hear, and then just work out, okay, what's our response to that? From everything you gathered, from your previous experiences, from your start in the role, what was it that you you felt you should you needed to prioritize when you first came in that, that you wanted to make happen? I mean, I suppose the honest answer to prioritising when I first came in was because within weeks we were looking at another lockdown. So it was how, again, do you shut down a building? How do you keep your staff safe? How do you keep your visitors safe? How do you reopen? So there's been a a dominance of operational thinking, um, which is just the reality for anybody running a public-facing organisation or business at this time. And there's been a lot of risk associated with that and the volatility in the environment we're working in, again, is really kind of quite changeable. So... You're trying to manage all of that and and be be strong and reliable and present, even though you're often in your own kitchen and all those sorts of things. So I guess just trying to work out what kind of leadership you need to apply and and illustrate and have at that time, as well as still being ambitious and and strategic. So I think what was really important for us when we were dealing with that operational and wider volatility was also to make sure that we opened, reopened with programmes and a welcome that was warm, full of hope and, am- and ambition that actually, I think for a local audience, because when we reopened in August last year, May this year, sorry, apologies, it was just a local audience. And we really, really wanted to position v Dundee as being a place where, to come and to be and to kind of dwell and to reflect and to have a really positive, hopeful and maybe even joyful experience in the building and around the plaza. So in terms of vision going forward, I think it's to build on on what was begun many, many years ago in Vini Dundee was just an idea spawned by the university and the many partners came around. But I genuinely believe that VA Dundee can be a place that celebrates the most extraordinary potential of design throughout the centuries, now and going forward, but also to be an everyday place for all people across the city and the region and beyond to come to. So we need to think and think about how you do that. And then I think for us as a museum Ken Gokuma said this in an early interview he did with one of our colleagues about how we're a 21st century museum and I really I really think about that quite a lot. We're an atypical building. We're not like Kelvin Grove, British Museum, v and London and National Museums. We're different. Um, and I think I want us to try to be a place that is sparking curiosity and joy and what a museum can be, what, what design can be as well. I think our focus on design will grow and grow. Um, but also to think really, really deeply about our civic role in the city. What responsibility do we have as a museum, as a as a democratic public space that I believe everybody has a right to, should see as theirs? And then how do we think about our social impact? How do we think about what happens within our building, but what kind of pulse of energy can we be and how do we radiate out, work across the city? How can we make a difference? I think we also want to really kind of deepen that. But then also, I guess it's maybe part of my my own professional history, but I think this was in the DNA of Vina Dundee anyway, which is to actually think about what can we do as a museum which champions design and what design can do as a, a significant lever for change across society. So I think we can be, simply, I suppose, be a museum that is that everyday place to celebrate the extraordinary through our programmes, have a real civic role within the city, deepen our social impact, 
but also be one of the key voices for how we develop and celebrate design from Scotland locally, but also have significant UK and international influence in that too. I, I suppose I want to touch on that. You talk about this opening it up and, and making everyone feel welcome to come into the building. I mean, it, it was literally described as the living room for the city, but there, there are significant barriers to getting people even to the waterfront th- through the door and let alone in a space that they, they may or may not feel comfortable in or experiencing. Already in your time, we've seen changes in the way that that space is being utilised inside and outside of the building. But I'm kind of interested in, so how how do we open up which, what is a, an iconic and I suppose a luxury, how do we open that up to make everyone feel comfortable coming to that space and have the ability to come to that space? Oh, I think it's just so many ways. And again, we could probably just do an hour just on that one question. Um, so partly, I I think you're, you're right. So it is about the nature of the architecture of V&A Dundee. It is unusual. It is epic. It's awesome. It's incredibly um, dynamic and different. But I also think there is something about... So I believe that design, good access to good design, design should not hinder you in life. It should help you. So I will answer this. It sounds like I'm meandering a little bit, but um, I think also what it illustrates is that V&A Dundee and the waterfront is really, really well designed and not everything everybody has access to is really, really well designed. And I think that makes some people feel that they're in a place that isn't for them because they haven't necessarily had extensive experience of what good design is. So I think there's something that bit about kind of how you then try and promote and encourage the use of good design across social housing, across schools, across health, across digital, all of that sort of stuff is why it's important for us to be advocates of that as well. I think also what V&A Dundee did um, before opening was really, really significant. So it did a really extensive and deep national and neighbourhood pre-engagement programme. We stopped doing that when the building opened. We still do work across communities, but we probably also need to think about what happens within our building, but also how we appear and show up in other places to build kind of confidence in us. But one of the one of the things that you've already alluded to that I was really struck by by returning to Dundee in lockdown when we were looking for a house, when V&A Dundee was closed, was how maybe people were using the, the waterfront and the plaza more than before because it became a place to go. And I also can't underestimate, I think, the, the power of Heather Street Donuts um, in that I... There's so many reasons why I, I, I love what they're doing outside V&A Dundee. Not only do I think the scale of the horse box and the Peugeot van over summer creates this beautiful contrast to enormous building. I think it creates an everyday democratic way to access the plaza because its scale is so much more human than maybe our building is. So I think that's really, really worked. But also when we were closed, Heather Street were open and they were actually developing relationships for us. Um, I didn't really realise that at the time. I've just been kind of learning this as I've been kind of watching it. So I suppose what we then started to think about was that our footprint doesn't start at our door. It starts at that that boundary from outside, you know, just across the road from the train station and all beyond. So we, how do, if people are happier coming to the plaza, how can we create experiences that aren't overwhelming, that are gentle, that are subtle? How do we work with other people? How do we work with, you know, Dundee Design Festival? How do we work with lots of other people that can, that can, that believe in what design can do, but it isn't, doesn't always need to be forefronted by V&A Dundee. So it's actually just about trying to think about how you actually embed design across the city in lots of different places. So that that's kind of part of our thinking too. How, so how you hold partnerships, how you communicate, it's not just what you programme and how and where you do that. I also think it is how you 
hold yourself as a set of individuals that make up an organisation. How you write your tweets, what you're tweeting about, how you speak when you're out doing like talks. I do loads of them, but also how we're writing emails to partners, just how we are holding those relationships and speaking to people as being part of the same place they are is just really, really important. So there's a, so there's all all of that permeates, I think, ultimately how we want to build love and loyalty for V&A Dundee, Dundee locally. And then I suppose just my only counter to that is that I also think that will take time. We're still so new. So I think um, we need to kind of bed in a little bit as well. And we've only, we've really only just had cleared two years of being open not that long ago because of the shutdowns with COVID. So, you know, I think it, it's kind of surprising how young we are given how known we are. And so I want to move on to talk a little bit about, I suppose, the the creative community and the design community in Dundee and sort of beyond, like throughout Scotland. Um, obviously, the V&A is, is, is or is going to be the, the design centre for Scotland. Um, and I suppose I want to understand... Obviously, that's a that's a Scotland wide title. That's that's a big title, and design in Scotland it's probably fair to say is dominated by the central belt. And I feel that in order to be recognised or noticed at the same level, Dundee has to punch way above its weight to get to that same level. And so, I suppose my question is: is how how does VNA help do that, and how does it help? The other organisations in the city do that as well. Yeah, loads in there again. So I think, I suppose maybe I'll be challenged back. Like, is it dominated by the central belt? There's bits of design which are dominated by Dundee, aren't there? If you think about kind of games design and those sorts of things. So I think sometimes maybe maybe we need to change our own narrative a little bit as well. Like I actually think people are looking at Dundee more and more and thinking, oh my goodness, they're really organising around this and it's not just one organisation or one company there's actually a crit I think it's about developing that critical mix and that critical mass and V&A Dundee because we're a, a V&A and we're Scotland's design museum we have significant convening influence and, and power I'm never that happy using the word power but I hope it makes sense in the context of the conversation so there's things that we can do around 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 that absolutely and I think it is also I We've just been looking at our new kind of vision and strategic plan and one of the elements that we're hoping to pursue within that is exactly what you're asking. How do we as Scotland's Design Museum with this renewed commitment from Scottish Government to think about, I suppose, design leadership? What does that mean for us as an organisation? So that is how we work with designers in terms of designers that we commission. It's how we celebrate them. It's how we create opportunities for them. All of those things, but also how we don't lead all of that. Where do we lead? Where do we support and enable others with the means and the levers that we've got, whether that's financial or about that convening influence and all those sorts of things. So we need to kind of kind of think through, think through all of that. But I guess the other bit that's really important for me and what you were asking is that I think there is already a significant consolidation happening around Dundee that's long lasting. We're just another significant layer on that kind of jigsaw as well. But I just feel there is an energy around Dundee and a consolidation that is that is that happening and we're part of it but a lot of that's already it's about how you harness it because a lot of it was already here before we came along too yeah absolutely and i think i think that we have a small but strong core like as a as a creative community and as a as a whole group of organizations in the city um and i think for me it's about becoming that place where the the small scale thrives yeah absolutely um, and I think we are we're a place that doesn't have a lot of 
large scale sort of agency based model companies um, and I think that's absolutely to our advantage but I still don't feel that we have the conditions there that are right to, to take advantage of the graduates that we produce um, or to support the the smaller scale people and, and really see that grow but I think what's really important is to see that grow in a sustainable way. For me, it's about there's something you said that I was really struck by that I also really firmly believe in that how we keep people in the city or attract people to the city. So our role as an employer, not just directly, but our ability to help generate value across the city, I think is a key indicator of our success. So that that value is and how people express whether they like us or love us or are still interested in us or actually if we're also helping them to generate um, you know, economic value and social and cultural value too. So that that probably is something. But I think it's really just about still having, when something still gives you energy, I think that that's when you know you're being successful with it. I didn't expect to talk about energy so much. Um, sorry. And is there anything that you've been listening to, watching, reading recently that you could recommend? Well, um, probably most of what I've been watching isn't, recommendable because actually it's to do with the kind of age of my youngest child and things but uh, so my partner in the deepest of lockdown um told me about roman mars podcast called 99 percent invisible and i've become really quite addicted to that as i'm kind of walking or cycling into work and i just love what it is a podcast and as a book and a set of bits of writing and interviews elicits in that it is that we we don't really see the majority of what is designed around us. So it's got quite a good international view as well. And all the podcasts just take you on different journeys into really quite specific things. So it can be the design of road systems. It can be like cat tunnels that people put up across housing in Switzerland. It can be about how the collections of Britain's biggest museums came together. It, you know, it's just like the everyday stuff that actually architects, designers, engineers, service designers, all those people are thinking about all the time. And I just love that it celebrates the exquisite in the everyday way that the places that people live come together physically. I just find it a thing of total joy. Yeah, I can absolutely 100% recommend that is a fantastic podcast. Um, yeah. And if people want to find you after this. Find me. Um well, hopefully, um, hopefully I'll be in V&A Dundee. I mean, I'm saying hopefully because just we're, we're going through the Omicron variant at the moment. So let's let's just hope that doesn't take root and that we remain open. Um, I'm on Twitter and yeah, Twitter is probably the best way. And I'm on Instagram, but my Instagram account is private, but maybe it shouldn't be. Um, so yeah, at V&A Dundee or on Twitter. Great. Thanks very much. Thank you. That was great. So thanks very much to Leone for doing that. Um, I really appreciate her taking the time. And yeah, it was it was fantastic to to chat through our journey and it could totally have spent another hour sort of delving much deeper into into loads of that stuff. Um so maybe I'll have to get her back on a little further down the line. Um but yeah, and, and as she said, Leone loves hearing feedback. So if you've got anything to say about VNA Dundee, then I don't know, write a big list and send it in I'm sure, well I hope she's not made a rod for a road back by saying that but I'm, I'm sure she, she's fine with it um, but yeah if if this is maybe the first time you're listening to the podcast, um, there's loads of other episodes, um, over a hundred now um, capturing journeys and, and thoughts and insights of, of lots of other great creatives connected to Dundee so um, yeah, you can, you can go back and find some names that you know or, or find some names that you don't and, and listen um, 
there's also a way now that you can support the podcast. Um, I've been doing this for maybe like five years. So if you have been enjoying the episodes or if you just really love this one, um, you can buy me a coffee. Um, you can head to ko-fi.com forward slash ccc dundee um, and buy me a wee cup of coffee and allows me to put more great guests in front of um, the microphone but yeah and if if you want to hear about the, the upcoming episodes and everything that's going out um, the best way is to, to follow on social media so it's at ccc dundee on twitter and on instagram and it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash ccc dundee and yeah, we're on all your normal podcasting platforms. Ask your smart speaker. They'll know about it as well. Um, but yeah, until next week, um, when my guest is Kate Scarlett, who's a textile designer. Goodbye. <laughs>